Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted 2015, a Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends, enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next year. So welcome to this afternoon's seminar. And uh, we have Adrian coming to, to speak to us about trusting the Bible. So my name is Graham Ans. I'm part of Jeremy's team. Just want to welcome you, but also to welcome Adrian just to, to speak to us this afternoon. Adrian is someone who travels around the UK as an evangelist, has a, a very well-known ministry. Some of you may well have heard him many, many times before. Just seeing the power of God in salvation and healing. And maybe for a number of you, you've seen God move in some of those settings. And this is an opportunity for, for you to hear God speaking to us about how we trust the Bible, how we can be equipped to reach out to those around us, how we can be equipped to answer questions that hopefully people are asking us about our faith. You know, that's why we're here. That's why we're on mission. You know, hopefully we are engaging with people. People are coming back to us with questions. Why do you believe that? What does the Bible say about this? And that is why we're here this afternoon. So I'd love to to pray and uh, then let Adrian come up and begin. We are going to finish in about an hour this afternoon. So we're going to finish with the Q&A time. We're going to be finishing around half past three. So for those of you who need to go then, uh, you'll be free to go then. Uh, so that is our timing. And uh, so we're going to get going. We're not going to waste any more time. We're going to, uh, to get on. So Father, we, we pray, Lord, for your presence with us this afternoon. We pray for your anointing on Adrian as he speaks to us, as he opens up your word to us, as he helps us practically. Lord, be those who are good, Lord, those who are, Lord, so wonderful with our friends. Lord, I pray for every person in this room, those, Lord, that you put alongside us, those lives, Lord, that we touch in our daily lives. Lord, we want to, to be able to answer questions. We want to be able to explain you. We want to be able to explain about your gospel and about the Bible. And so, we, Lord, we say this afternoon, will you equip us? Holy Spirit, will you come? And will you equip us? Lord, we want to hear from you. So, Lord, we pray for Adrian now as he comes with your anointing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming to this seminar, which has the title, You Can't Trust the Bible. Or maybe a question, isn't the Bible really just a book of myths. And for much of my life, I would have said, yes, I think the Bible is really a book of myths. Like many people, I thought that the Bible couldn't be trusted. Uh, I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. I wasn't looking for God. I was perfectly happy as I was. And I didn't want to believe a lot of nonsense. I did a history degree at university And then I became a reporter 
on the Times newspaper in London, and there I was trained to be cynical, trained to disbelieve everything and everyone. I then became a BBC radio and eventually TV presenter, and again, there we were trained to doubt and to pull apart every source that claimed to be telling the truth. Now, perhaps the most amazing claim that the Bible makes is that Jesus was and is the unique Son of God. Now, that sounded like a myth to me, I mean, even as a concept. So let's begin by asking, is what the Bible says about Jesus, is what the New Testament says about Jesus supported by evidence outside the Bible? I mean, were there any non-Christians in ancient history who can tell us anything about Jesus? The answer is yes, and I suggest we just look at these references one by one, and then after that we'll try and assess their significance. So, a Jewish non-Christian first century historian called Josephus says, at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus. His conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who become his disciples didn't abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Josephus also makes a later reference to Jesus when he describes how the death of Jesus' brother James was ordered by the high priest Ananias. He, that is Ananias, convened a meeting of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. What else do we know about Jesus from outside the Bible? Well, the main Roman historian of this period is Tacitus. And Tacitus describes how the emperor Nero was suspected of starting the fire that burnt down Rome in 64 AD. Writing in 115 AD, Tacitus says that Nero blamed the Christians to divert suspicion away from himself. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Well, this confirms that the movement was based on the worship of a man who had been crucified. Now, to first century people, this was not only bizarre, but was also ridiculous, because a crucified man was the scum of the earth 
in Roman society. Pliny the Younger was governor of Bithynia in northwest Turkey. In around 111 AD, he wrote the following letter to his friend, the Emperor Trajan, and in this letter he refers to some Christians who he has recently arrested. Pliny is clearly perplexed that they sang verses to an invisible historical person as if this person were God. It reads, I've asked them if they are Christians, and if they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time with a warning of the punishment awaiting them. If they persist, I order them to be led away for execution. For whatever the nature of their admission, I'm convinced that their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. They also declare that the sum total of their guilt or error amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn on a fixed day to chant verses, alternately amongst themselves, in honor of Christ, as if to a God, and also to bind themselves by oath, not for any criminal purpose, but to abstain from theft, robbery, and adultery. Now, incidentally, if you read Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown wants you to believe that it was only after 325 AD that people started to believe that Jesus was divine. But as we can see, Pliny has got these Christians in Turkey in 111 AD, fully 200 years earlier, worshipping Jesus as God. In fact, in a few minutes' time, we're going to see documentary evidence that suggests that Christians were worshipping Jesus as God immediately after his resurrection. But first, Lucian of Samosata was a second-century Greek humorist. In one of his works, he describes the early followers of Jesus. The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. And I'll also mention just one other early anti-Christian source. This is the earliest part of something called the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, which was compiled between 70 and 200 AD. This source is scathing about Jesus in several passages. It calls Jesus a false messiah. It says that he led Israel astray. It says that he performed miracles by sorcery. And in a document called Sanhedrin 43a, it confirms that Jesus was executed on the eve of the Passover. Now, there are other early, ancient, non-Christian documents which we don't have time for now, but just taking the five that we have looked at and pulling all of these non-biblical sources together, here is our question. What would we know about Jesus from the ancient world if we totally ignored the Bible? Well, firstly, both Josephus and Lucian say that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny, the Talmud, and Lucian imply that Jesus was a powerful and honored teacher. 
So the Talmud indicates that Jesus performed miraculous feats but was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Fourth, Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all mention that Jesus was crucified. Tacitus and Josephus say this happened under Pontius Pilate. The Talmud says it was on the eve of the Passover, exactly as the New Testament describes. Fifthly, Josephus has reports of Jesus' resurrection. Sixthly, he says that Jesus' followers believe that he was the Christ or the Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Christians worship Jesus as God. So, this is a promising start. There is unbiased support for the Bible's version of events from early non-Christian, even anti-Christian sources. But this just prompts another good question. Hey, haven't the stories in the Bible about Jesus, haven't they got exaggerated over the years? I mean, they were written down a long time afterwards, weren't they? Well, Jesus died in around 33 AD, and in one of the New Testament books, a letter known as 1 Corinthians, we have got an account of the resurrection appearances of Jesus that we can date back to within a few months of the actual event. So, writing in around 55 AD, the Apostle Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you. And let me just say that those words in the original Greek turn out to be the crucial ones. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this passage presents several problems for anyone suggesting that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing 22 years after the resurrection, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact or not because the majority of the 500 or so witnesses are still alive and they're willing to be interviewed. And then for a number of technical reasons to do with the actual Greek and Aramaic words in this passage... This passage is thought to contain within it a much earlier creedal statement. It is likely that Paul picked up, he collected this list of resurrection appearances shortly after his own conversion in Damascus or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem to meet with two leaders of the early Christian church, Peter and James. This is sometime between 35 and 38 A.D., And Paul describes that trip in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Now, here's the key point in all of this. It turns out, folks, there is wide agreement amongst scholars from all kinds of different backgrounds that this list of resurrection appearances was already well established when Paul collected it, sometime around 35 A.D., 
So this list not only existed in 35 AD, but it had been around for a while when Paul picked it up, when he collected it, sometime around 35 AD. This shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. This shows that the resurrection appearances are not a much later legendary development. So we have got a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. But if you're looking for the first full-length biography of Jesus, then conservative scholars argue that the first gospel, or the earliest gospel, Mark, was completed around 60 AD, and Luke shortly afterwards, probably 61 AD. Now, let's consider the dating of the gospels. The, the standard dating of the gospels in what sometimes is called liberal circles would be Mark in the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s, and John in the 90s. These, these dates are at one end of the spectrum. But conservative scholars have presented powerful reasons recently for thinking that Mark's gospel must have been written sometime around 60 AD. So, if Jesus died in 33 AD, that would be a time gap of 60 minus 33, a time gap of 27 years. Question. Isn't 27 years a very long time gap? Well, not if it's an eyewitness account. When I was a journalist writing for national newspapers in London, we were always waiting for politicians to publish their diaries because they were the closest to the events. Sometimes a politician will publish his or her diaries fully 30 years after they leave power, but when they do, we still regard their eyewitness account of what really happened in 10 Downing Street or the Oval Office as more reliable, more authoritative than the press reports that came out at the time. Let's take an event today where I am one of several eyewitnesses. And what if all of us who are eyewitnesses to this particular event write down our eyewitness account of what happened? Let's imagine that we put them in a book form and we hand them to Graham here on the front row. Now, what's Graham getting? Graham is getting a collection of eyewitness accounts. And the important thing, folks, is that much of the New Testament is the work of eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were two of Jesus' 12 disciples. Peter's gospel, Peter's account, is written down by Mark, who's Peter's traveling companion. But Mark himself is an actor in the New Testament story. We can see Mark there in the narrative. Meanwhile, Luke travels with Paul. Paul is an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. Now, if lots of eyewitnesses trooped into the witness box now, and they each described the same events, we would regard that as impressive evidence. But many people are totally unaware of any of this. Many people think that the New Testament is the product of Chinese whispers. But even if there was accidental or deliberate exaggeration going, in, going on in those years after Jesus' death, by and large, it's the original eyewitnesses 
who are the ones who write down the New Testament. They were in a better position than anybody else to write what really happened. So the Gospels are written too early, before Chinese whispers could ever have become a factor. Professor A. N. Sherwin-White of St. John's College, Oxford University, studied this question as a Roman historian. And he concluded that it takes two full or complete generations for the core truth of historical events to become corrupted by legendary embellishment. According to Dr. Sherwin-Wright, the Gospels, as a result, are written too early, before Chinese whispers, before accurate information about the real Jesus could have become corrupted. But hang on, that just prompts another good question. Look, even if I did accept that those original eyewitnesses, they didn't exaggerate when they wrote down what they wrote down, how do we know that the copy of what they said that we've got today, how do we know that's an accurate copy of what they originally wrote down all those years ago. I mean, this is only a copy, yeah? I mean, the original parchments have been lost. So for all we know, hey, during the copying process, all sorts of errors could have crept in. What we're asking is, how can we be sure that the New Testament is free from mistakes? The answer is that we can be sure through the science of textual criticism. We can be confident we have an accurate copy, and here is why. This table gives us a chance to compare the New Testament to other ancient books which today are considered trustworthy. Now, we don't have the originals of any of the six works listed here. But before they disappeared, the originals were copied. So historians look at the time gap between when the original was written. So can you see, for example, for Tacitus, the original was written in 100 AD. And the earliest surviving copy, well, the oldest surviving copy of Tacitus we have was created in 1100 AD, which is a time gap of a thousand years. So the shorter the time gap between the original document and the earliest surviving copy the more sure we can be that we have got an accurate copy of the original. Well, as you can see, the New Testament does really rather well by comparison. Its various books are written in between 49 and 90 AD. And as I'm sure you know, the earliest bit of the New Testament anywhere in the entire world is in Manchester. Where else would it be? It's in the John Rylands Library. And it's dated, it's a bit of John's Gospel, and it's dated 130 AD. Now, 130 AD is only 40 years after the original John's Gospel was written. Now, to you and me, 40 years is a long time. But it is like a photocopy when compared to these other ancient texts where the gap is anything up to a thousand years so the New Testament really does do very well by comparison. And that, folks, if you like, is the first leg of a two-legged argument for the reliable transmission of the Gospels, the information in the Gospels. 
The second leg of the argument is all to do with the vast number of identical surviving copies. And to explain the second leg of the argument, I'd now like to attempt a humorous illustration. Here we go. Imagine that you have a relative called Aunt Sally. Your Aunt Sally makes chocolate brownies that actually make the people who eat her brownies look younger. Your Aunt Sally has discovered the secret of perpetual youth and that secret is hidden in the recipe for her brownies that make everybody who eats them look younger. Wow! Well, as you can imagine, Aunt Sally's recipe for her brownies is a closely guarded secret. Aunt Sally doesn't have an Apple Mac. Aunt Sally doesn't have a computer. She hasn't got an iPad. She doesn't have uh, a typewriter in her home. Aunt Sally writes down in her own handwriting her recipe for her chocolate brownies, wherein is hidden the secret of perpetual youth. Aunt Sally gives one copy of her recipe for her brownies to each of her three best friends. So there are a total of four copies of Aunt Sally's recipe, her own and one each for her three best friends. And all is going well until one fateful day. Aunt Sally's dog eats her original recipe for her chocolate brownies in a panic Aunt Sally gathers her three best friends together in a room and she falls down on the floor and she pleads with them that she's lost her recipe. She says, is there anything you can do to help me? And then each one of her three friends describes an unfortunate mishap. One accidentally lost her copy during a house move two years ago. A second inexplicably threw her copy of the recipe away. A third had her copy destroyed during a house fire. Aunt Sally breaks down in tears. Every existing copy of her recipe has been lost. She pleads with her friends, Is there anything you could do to help me? And then each of her three friends makes a dramatic confession. They say, Sally, we never really knew how to tell you this before, but the truth is that before we lost our copy of your recipe for your brownies, each of us wrote out ten handwritten copies of your recipe, and we gave one to each of our ten best friends. Rather than being upset, Aunt Sally jumps up in the air and jumps for joy. She hugs her three best friends, rejoicing in the news that thirty copies of her recipe still exist. And so comes the great day. When Aunt Sally welcomes all 30 of these people around to her house and they all arrive holding their recipe. And Aunt Sally takes the recipes and she lays them down on her living room carpet next to each other. Aunt Sally then gets on her hands and knees and she studies each one of these recipes and she discovers that 27 of the 30 recipes are identical. Word for word, identical. But documents 14 and 21 have comments or statements in them that none 
of the other 30 copies have, and the statements are not identical. Document 14 has the insertion, then let the brownies stand to cool, whereas document 21 just has the statement, let stand. Meanwhile, Doctor 27 has a comma and the word and that none of the other 30, 29 documents have. Now, here is the crucial question. Do you think that Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct the original text of her recipe from the 30 copies? Yes! Yes, she can! Because 27 of the 30 were identical. Word for word identical. The textual variants in documents 14, 21, and 27 must, therefore, be later insertions that did not appear in the original. And that, in a very simplified form, is the case that we have for the New Testament. Looking at the extreme right-hand column here, the greater the number of identical surviving copies we have, the more certain we can be that what we've got is an accurate copy of what was originally written. For the New Testament, we have a total of 5,686 Greek manuscripts. These are found in locations all over the ancient world. And the similarity between them and the 10,000 Latin manuscripts and a further 8,000 in Ethiopic, Slavic, and Armenian means that when we put them all together, we can accurately reconstruct the original New Testament from all these thousands of copies. If you have stacks of ancient copies found all over the Mediterranean world, and then you do put them all next to each other, and they are all essentially saying the same thing, there cannot have been exaggeration going on. Because if there were exaggeration going on, all of the copies would all be saying different things. If all the copies are saying the same thing, then whoever's been doing the copying must have been copying very accurately. With so many early copies from so many different places, all saying the same thing, we can be certain that the New Testament we have in our hands today is an accurate record of what was originally written. Summing up Sir Frederick Kenyon, perhaps the world's greatest expert on Greek papyri, a former director of the British Museum, concluded, the last foundation for any doubt that the Scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. So, in conclusion, it seems there wasn't corruption of original, early, eyewitness, historical information about Jesus before the New Testament documents first got written, nor has there been corruption of that information subsequently as those documents were copied. And that, folks, is a brief or a concise case for the reliability of the New Testament. Okay, let's look at some questions that could be asked. One question could be, okay, what about the Gnostic Gospels? In the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown claimed that there are other Gospels which got excluded from the Bible. And in a sense, he's right, because there were several so-called Gnostic Gospels which were written in the late second or third centuries, and these, as you know, aren't found in the New Testament today. 
of these Gnostic Gospels, the one which is suggested or put forward as the earliest and also the most important is the so-called Gospel of Thomas. And Dan Brown says that the striking thing about the Gnostic Gospels is that they present Jesus as being much more positive about the role of women than Jesus is positive about the role of women in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But you have got to wonder whether Dan Brown has ever read the Gnostic Gospels. For example, this is the final sentence from the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the only way that a woman can go to heaven, according to the Gospel of Thomas, is to become a man. This is hardly Jesus the radical feminist. Here is another thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Thomas. This is saying 14. Jesus said, if you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. And if you pray, you'll be condemned. And if you give to charity, you'll harm your spirits. Now, the Gospel of Thomas is championed as being the earliest Gnostic Gospel. But it is no earlier than 175 AD. We know that that is the case because the Gospel of Thomas unmistakably contains material from a book written by a man called Tatian who wrote a harmony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he wrote that in 175 AD. So Thomas was written sometime between 175 AD and 200 AD. In other words, by the time that Thomas was written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had been in circulation for around 100 years. And so the Gnostic Gospels are not included in the Bible because they were just too late to be considered reliable. It would be the same as arriving at the bus stop to catch the bus fully 100 years after the bus has left. That's why the Gnostic Gospels aren't on the bus. Question. How can you take the reports of miracles in the New Testament seriously? Well, tomorrow here at half past two, the final talk in this series, we'll do a detailed investigation into the most important and the most spectacular miracle in the New Testament, the resurrection of Christ. But here I think we should start off by asking, how does the New Testament do in terms of its general reliability? And let's take Luke, for example. The argument here is going to be, if Luke, who's the author not only of Luke's Gospel, but also of the Acts of the Apostle, if Luke gets it wrong where we can test his reliability, in other words, if Luke gets his geography wrong, if he gets people's names wrong, if he gets people's titles wrong, well then why would we ever trust him to accurately report the details of a miracle? So, how does Luke do where we can test his reliability? Well, archaeologists have examined Luke's references to 32 countries, 
54 cities and nine islands and found not a single mistake. Luke's use of Roman names, for example, is meticulously accurate. Luke is painstaking in calling each and every Roman official by their correct title. For example, Luke refers to polytarchs at Thessalonica in Acts 17 verse 6, which, if you have the NIV Bible, is translated as city officials. And people used to say, up until fairly recently, oh, this is ridiculous, there's no such thing as a polytarch. There's no reference anywhere in the Roman world to a polytarch. But then in recent years, archaeologists have found not just one, but 35 inscriptions mentioning polytarchs. Another reason why we can take seriously the general reliability of the New Testament is because of the principle of embarrassment. What do I mean by that? Well, when you're trying to present a case to the world and make all the world won over to your version of events, you tend not to include in your presentation lots of stuff that would immediately discredit what you're trying to say in the ears and hearts and minds of the people that you're trying to persuade. And yet, in the New Testament, we have all sorts of stuff that you'd never leave in if you were fabricating Christianity. For example, it's the hard sayings of Jesus. As you know, Jesus said loads of stuff that, quite honestly, it would be a lot easier if he'd never said it. Stuff that immediately makes you want to turn and walk away and say, no, I don't want anything to do with this. Even as Jesus is saying things like, if you want to follow me and be my disciple, you need to first of all eat my flesh and secondly drink my blood. And even in the Gospels, people, even his disciples leave him at that point. You know, yuck, that's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to have anything to do with this. If you were fabricating Jesus, uh, the Christianity, then when Jesus goes back to his hometown, I'd have them decking out the bunting. I'd have them cheering from the rafters. I'd have loads of miracles. But when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, they're completely unimpressed. They say, oh, no, 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 you can't be for real. We know who you are. Look, here are your brothers. There's your mum. And Jesus can't do any miracles in Nazareth. You'd never leave this stuff in. All through the Gospels, the disciples are portrayed as being arrogant and vain. And yet, these are the guys, the 12 guys who are supposed to take the ball down the field and evangelize the world. And yet, in the actual documents, they're totally discredited as self-seeking and arrogant and vain. And they're frequently told off by Jesus. And Jesus is regularly exasperated by their lack of faith. They're not champions of the new religion you know, he's completely fed up with them. And yet, this is the bloke who's right there telling you all this stuff. In the Gospels, we see Peter denying Jesus. And yet, he's the main guy in the evangelization of the world. He's the guy who's supposed to lead the Christian church. He's, he and James are like the head honchos back at Jerusalem. And yet, there, in the actual story, he denies Jesus. You'd never leave that in. Mark's whole portrayal of Peter is unflattering. And yet, this is Peter's gospel. Mark is the guy who writes it down, but it's Peter's message in that even in Mark's gospel, Peter's gospel, Peter comes off really badly and he always gets it wrong. He jumps to the wrong conclusion. He lets the side down. Now, perhaps even more significantly, when it comes to the crucial moment, the decisive moment where you could actually test if Christianity is true or not, Jesus stakes everything on his claim that 
to back up my claim to be God, I'm going to physically rise from the dead. And at the crucial moment, the first witnesses both to the empty tomb and to the resurrection are women. To which we would say, so what? Obviously. But, unfortunately, in Roman culture at the time, in Jewish culture at the time, and in Greek culture at the time, in the first century, a woman's testimony was not admissible in a court of law. And yet, the key star witnesses, both of the empty tomb and of the resurrection, are women, which would immediately have discredited the whole religion in the ears, minds, and hearts of the very people they were trying to dissuade. They were trying to persuade because they would have thought, well, you know, we wouldn't take that seriously. And so you'd never leave this stuff in. Particularly as John tells us at the end of his gospel that he is deliberately leaving stuff out. John says, look, I've got too much material. I've had to be selective. I've had to leave most of my material out. You've just got some edited highlights. Now, if that's what the gospel writers are doing, why on earth would they leave all this embarrassing, discrediting stuff in? Well, the most likely explanation is because, you know what? Actually, women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus. And that's what the disciples were really like, and that's why they come over so poorly in the Gospels. So they just wrote down what really happened. Well, what about the actual miraculous claims? Well, let me briefly mention this book, which is written by Dr. Craig S. Keener. And uh, he was writing a commentary on the book of Acts. It just so happens, Keener's married to a lady who's experienced a spectacular modern-day miracle. And so he's gathering, kind of in his spare time, uh, all these miracle accounts from today, around the world. He's collating all this information. And his footnotes for his commentary on Acts are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Because he's got all these, you know, by the way, this sort of thing still happens today. And here's my most recent visit to Sierra Leone. And there I saw, and, and he's getting more and more. Until eventually it just becomes too big and he thinks, oh no, I'm going to have to separate out my Acts commentary, which you can get. And I'm now going to write a two-volume account of all the modern miracles that I've been researching. Now, why am I telling you this? Because where does this objection, you can't take miracles seriously, come from? Well, it's a European thing. And it developed during the Enlightenment principally because there was a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher called David Hume, and he argued very persuasively and influentially that you cannot take miracles seriously because miracles contradict human experience. So as soon as you hear a miracle story, you know it can't be real because miracles don't happen because that contradicts human experience. And Keener has demonstrated that you can no longer argue that way. Why? Because there are literally millions of people living today who are claiming to be experiencing miracles. These are not just people in the majority world, south of the equator. These are people also living in Europe and in North America. There are literally millions of people who are claiming today to be experiencing miracles, so you can no longer say, oh, well, you, obviously miracles can't be real because, you know, nobody experiences anything like that today. Clearly, people do make these miracle claims today in vast numbers. Another question would be, what about the reliability of the Old Testament? I like to say that the key question here to respond and the key thing to ask is, if someone says, what about 
the reliability of the Old Testament to say, have you got an oyster card? Because if they have got an oyster card, then it's really as simple as getting on the northern line or on the central line and getting off at Tottenham Court Road, and then it's a very short walk to the British Museum. And the great thing about being British is that during the great days of the British Empire, British people went all over the world, all over the ancient world, plundering all the goods of, for example, the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Persians and carted it back to Tottenham Court Road, where you can see it for free. So I would argue that you can establish the general reliability of the Old Testament simply by walking around the British Museum. And so you could get a little booklet like this through the British Museum with the Bible, and there you can see all the Assyrian stuff, all the Babylonian stuff, and all the uh, Persian stuff, which is, there's a lot of that, which does establish the general reliability of the Old Testament. Also, the... uh, In 1947, there was a significant moment when a shepherd boy in Engedi by the Dead Sea lost one of his goats. And uh, the way he was trying to find his goat was by picking up stones and chucking them into caves, hoping for a bleating noise, indicating, ah, there's my lost goat. Actually, what he heard was the cracking of pottery, which intrigued him. So he climbs up into this cave and makes probably the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century, he finds the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there, folks, in a single bound, we were able to test the reliable transmission of the Old Testament. Why? Because in one of those pots, we found a copy of the entire book of Isaiah that is fully 1,000 years older than the copy of Isaiah that we were working with until 1947. So if you have a Bible printed, published in 1946, the Bible that you've got today is working with a copy of Isaiah that is 1,000 years more ancient than the 1946 one. And of course, where there are any textual variations, you can see those tiny letters at the bottom in the footnotes, that's where you've got a difference between the received text and the Dead Sea Scrolls text. And you'll see there are No significant differences. There are tiny differences. Question, isn't it widely accepted that the Josephus passage about Jesus has been corrupted by Christian interpolation? Yes, that's why I didn't use it. I used a 10th century Arabic version. And of course, no one is suggesting that the second reference I used from Josephus has suffered any interpolation. But anyway, you can use the Arabic version, which hasn't been corrupted. Another question, what about Bart Ehrman? Have you heard of Bart Ehrman? He's a Wheaton College graduate at the same college where Billy Graham studied. Uh, So he's from an evangelical background, but has written books about textual variants. So, for example, one of them is called Misquoting Jesus. But what doesn't get into popular currency is the fact that even Bart Ehrman has conceded that no significant doctrine is at stake. He's written a book about textual variants, but then he's actually conceded, look, Whatever these all amount to, no doctrine of Christianity is at stake with all these textual variants. So it seems to me that the main thing that Bart Ehrman has done is said to us, you know that bit at the end of Mark 16, like the last bit? That actually wasn't in the original earliest manuscripts. And you know that story about Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John 7, John 8? That actually wasn't in the earliest original texts. But... 
we already knew that that was the case because in your Bible and in my Bible for ages and ages, when it gets to that bit, there's like a massive space, yeah? And then it says in capital letters, the earliest documents do not have the bit that follows. And if you get the ESV, they've got like loads of footnotes and everything. They get to those bits, there's absolutely no footnotes at all. And then they carry on. So we already knew that those bits weren't in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. And that seems to be his main contribution. What about a typical Muslim challenge? Have you heard this where Christians are challenged on the basis of Mark 16 to drink deadly poison. So, you're saying that your book is the word of God. Here's a simple test. Here's some poison. Drink that and I'll believe what you say. Well, Bart Ehrman, of course, his studies are all about that. That that bit of Mark 16 isn't in the most reliable and earliest Documents. So I, I would never build, if, if you're preaching on Mark 16, you wouldn't want to build a theology on that passage. And so you wouldn't want to build a theology of poison drinking on this because for all we know, that passage could be two, three hundred years later. It may well not be, and almost certainly wasn't part of the original Mark's gospel. Just a couple more quick things before we invite questions, and I'll invite questions in about two minutes' time. Aren't the gospels just propaganda? Uh, I don't think so. I think when you read the first four verses of Luke's gospel, I think you're looking at someone who's seriously interested in reporting history. Isn't this just a case of history being written by the winners? Definitely not, because these documents are written 250 years before Christianity wins. The New Testament documents are written at a time when Christianity is losing. People are getting killed all over the shop. There's persecution. There's all sorts of terrible things going on. It's a oppressed minority. Christianity isn't winning till fully 250 years later. Last question before I invite you guys to put your hands up, ask anything you'd like. You might be wondering, look, is anybody actually persuaded by all this stuff? I mean, are there any kind of fair-minded people who hear this kind of material and they think, oh, well, gosh, actually, yeah, maybe, maybe the traditional... Jesus, like the historic Jesus, maybe that, that the Jesus of the Bible really is the real Jesus. And the answer is definitely yes. I mean, I'll just give you one example. A lady called Anne Rice, who is famous because she's the author of Interview with a Vampire, which is a famous book that I think probably became more famous. It's a Tom Cruise film. At least I think it's a Tom Cruise film. It's definitely a film. Anyway, Anne Rice writes historical novels. So she's got this new project. I'm going to write a historical novel about Jesus. So let's research the historical Jesus. So when she goes to the bookshop, what does she find? All this revisionist stuff, the Jesus seminar Jesus, the, all this reinvented Jesus, all these, you know, the liberal Jesus, you know, all these different Jesuses. And so she starts to read all this stuff because this is all the latest material. Plus this is all her worldview. And she's just completely underwhelmed. The scholarship is so poor that she starts to go back to the other side. And she concludes that the actual Jesus of history is the Jesus of the Gospels, that the revisionist Jesus just doesn't stack up. There isn't enough scholarly weight behind it. And so she's someone who gave her life to Christ. It was a pretty dramatic conversion in her case. She really did swing from one worldview right down uh, to the other. In fact, you can read her testimony or listen to it on the I Am Second uh, website. Uh, but anyway, folks, uh, I've spoken for 
quite a long time. We're going to have 10 minutes for questions. Then we'll have a break. Anybody who needs to go can go. Then we'll carry on for another 15 minutes, and then we'll be completely done. So Graham's got a microphone. Let's just have 10 minutes of questions, then we'll break. Anybody have a question, please put your hand up, and Graham will run around and find you, and we'll have some Q&A, and then we'll go our separate ways. Anyone have a question? One at the very back. Thank you so much. Hello. Hello. Thank you very much. Um, I read a, a book over this summer that was terrible. I actually stopped reading it halfway through, uh, but one of it's, it's called The Fifth Gospel. Yeah. Um, it caught my eye. I've never really read those sort of Dan Brown books, but one of the main things in that was um, in comparing sort of John's gospel from synoptic gospels and, and drawing out, there was a point in it drawing out how uh, timeline changes how there's lots of timeline changes between uh, how John puts things and orders things compared to synoptic gospels. And, and the reasons behind that are similar to probably what you said, but more yeah. about uh, the gospel writers writing with an agenda and with a, a, a kind of a vision of who the Jesus they wanted to paint was. Uh, how, how do you respond to that kind of thing? Okay, thank you so much. This is a really good question about the very striking difference between John... And the synoptic, the so-called synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, there's no doubt that John writes from a different perspective. Although, to be fair to John, he does actually tell us that. He does actually say that he's got a particular view that he wants to, um, you know, he talks about the editorial process at the end of his gospel. I would say that it's really worthwhile to do a little exercise where you ignore John and you just see how much of the Jesus that we know and love can you get from just Matthew, Mark, Luke. And it's amazing how much you can get. So in the Synoptic Gospels, you've got Jesus. Um, well, for example, the last bit in Matthew 28, where, we, where Jesus tells people to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly there, he is talking about himself as God. Um, also, you've got the I Am statements at his trial where Jesus talks about, remember he's a carpenter, and he talks about how in the future he's going to come back on clouds and he's going to judge everyone that's ever lived. You've got Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking, again, this is a carpenter talking to you, and he's going to sit in judgment on everyone who's ever lived, and he's going to separate everybody who's ever lived into sheep and goats. He's going to be the judge at the last judgment. So it's not just in John's Gospel, that you get this divine Jesus. The divine Jesus is very much there in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's true that the Christology is more developed in John, but I think you can definitely get the same um, doctrines, key doctrines from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. As regards your question about the ordering of events, there are some of them where you can... Uh, take, for example, when Jesus does the overturning of the tables. This is the first thing that comes to mind as you ask me the question, okay? So the first thing that comes to mind is, when did that happen? And I think John's got it early on, as far as I can remember. It's possible that there were more than one occasion when Jesus cleansed the temple. I mean, that could be a very simple solution. Can I also say that with virtually all these questions... I find that in the NIV study Bible or the ESV study Bible, there is almost always a plausible, easily understandable way of reconciling some of these Bible difficulties. 
And it's not that hard. So I find usually, I don't look at it and think, oh, come on. I mean, you know, that really is a bit of a massive, you, you've totally sidestepped the question. Usually there is something plausible there that does make some sort of a sense. It's a great question. Any others? Take a couple more and then we'll, we'll have a break. Anybody else have a question? Yes, there's a lady here. Yeah. Nobody's worried about proving them. Yes. People believe it. It's just because he's a living Christ that it produces a problem. People are frightened. Okay, so for those I know who... I'm not really asking a question, but I... No, I think I... you're making an important point. And for those who missed the start of your point, you were worrying or expressing a concern about whether actually it's possibly unhelpful to make such a big play of establishing the historicity of Jesus... For example, all these other people, like Caesar's Gallic War, you don't get people going around trying to persuade people that Julius Caesar really existed. And I think the answer has to be, what is at stake? So, let's imagine it really is the case that of all the people that's ever lived, there is one unique individual who does rather fit into a different category because he really was God in in the person of human being. it would be rather important that the greatest number of people knew about that if this person was claiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, let's imagine that an almost equal number of people currently living of the 7 billion people alive today, 1.3 billion of them are absolutely committed to a different version of the same historical person. And this historical person definitely lived and is one of the most important prophets that God ever sent, but never died on the cross, wasn't crucified, and wasn't the Son of God. So, in the Quran, Jesus definitely exists, but isn't crucified, doesn't die on the cross, and is not the Son of God. Meanwhile, In a document written 700 years earlier, within about 30 years of the event, Jesus was crucified, which four of our five non-Christian sources say that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was the Son of God and did rise from the dead. Now, my point is not Christianity is true, Islam is false. My point is that we can all agree they can't both be equally true. It cannot be that Jesus died by crucifixion and also did not die by crucifixion. It cannot be that Jesus was the unique son of God and was also the not, not the unique son of God. So I think if I was living, growing up in a Muslim home, I would be really grateful to hear an alternative version of history because the version of history that I've been brought up with is in conflict with secular history. The biggest difficulty Islam has is not that it contradicts the Bible. The biggest problem that Islam has is that it contradicts secular history. They've loaded the whole thing onto this thing that Jesus was never crucified. And even a secular historian, as I will show tomorrow, one of the four things that we can be most sure about, about the historical Jesus, even if you're an atheist, is that Jesus definitely died by crucifixion. And that's the one thing 
that they go against. And that's a source that's fully 700 years after the fact. Okay, uh, shall we have... Now, I'll tell you what, let's draw a pause there. In 30 seconds, I'm going to take more questions, and I'm going to go for another 15 minutes. If you need to slip out, why don't you do that quietly right now? Anybody else, put your hand up, and we'll keep going for 15 minutes, and then we'll be done, and we'll call it a day at uh, quarter two. Anybody else have a question? Put your hand up nice and high. Any other questions? Yes, there's a young man over here. Oh, there's one there as well. Go for it. Thank you, Adrian. Um, you talked quite a lot about the accuracy of copying, translate, copying uh, versions of the Bible or the Bible down through the ages. Um, one of the things we might often get hit with is, well, you've got umpteen translations. Is yes. that really helpful? Yes. Yeah. Um, this is one of those things that when you're talking to people about the Christian faith, you hear again and again and again. But when you are familiar with the business of Bible translation, this wouldn't be one of the things you'd be worried about. Particularly if you are using English as your first language. If you have English as your first language, you are batting on the best batting wicket ever. I mean, you've got so many good reasons to trust the reliability of the translations you're receiving. But we're in a much stronger position than our parents or our grandparents are on this subject because we can say something that our parents and our grandparents could never say. We can say to people, if you're really genuinely concerned about the accuracy of the translation, all you need to do is get an internet connection. Because if you have an internet connection, what's happening right now is that New Testament scholars are going around the world with high-resolution cameras photographing the earliest documents. And because you can now view those online, if you can find three years of your life, you can teach yourself to read and write New Testament Greek. And then, in three years' time, you'll be able to write your own translation. At which point, you don't have to worry about anybody else's translation. You can do it yourself. So you've got all the best available documents that exist in the whole of the world and you can see them all perfectly well. Plus, you can read and write New Testament Greek as well as anybody else. So you just do it yourself. And then you can have the version according to whatever your name is, your own scholarship, and then problem solved. Any other questions? Yes, one over here. You, you talked about Islam um, uh, not going along with the, the main thread of historical information we've got. Do you think that's a reason why certain terrorist groups are destroying uh, holy sites? To destroy the evidence? Uh, I think that's an interesting question. My personal response is I think no. I don't think that's the reason they're doing it. I think they're doing it because they are taking seriously what the Quran says about idols and idolatry and therefore they are taking action against sites which are connected to idolatry. I'm not sure they're doing it to destroy evidence that would undermine the historicity of Islam because, of course, they're in absolutely no doubt about the historicity of Islam. Now, what will be much more interesting is to see what happens from now on because within the last 12 months, 
scholars researching the origins of the Quran, remember everybody agrees that the Quran was written down sometime after the life of Muhammad. So there definitely was a time gap. A Muslim would be totally happy to say this. Within the last 12 months, we've got significant scholarship that actually originates with Muslim scholars, but is now being put forward by people like Jay Smith. And if you go on to the New Day website, you can hear Jay talking about this scholarship at New Day just three weeks ago, which now presents a clear case for the original Quran being different from the Quran that we have today. Now, if that were to get popularly disseminated, then I think you could well see terrorist attacks targeted at those scholars who aren't necessarily Christians. And I think you would possibly see exactly what you're talking about. You would then see attacks, not just on cartoons of the prophet, but you'd see attacks on Oxford University academics, which would be a scary thing. And... Uh, yeah, gives gives us all pause for thought that um, I don't know of any other worldview that's saying if you contradict my worldview, you know, you're not long for this life. But that is what they would say. Any other questions? There's one on the very back row there in the center. Um, the the general kind of conversation is about how we trust the Bible and how we can. Um, anti-questions, I suppose, for uh, non-Christians. But how do we overcome the issue of people saying back to us, well, Christians, you can't actually agree amongst yourselves about certain elements of the Bible? Well, that's a really important point. I think if somebody feels, oh, look, Christians disagree so much that that does fog things or muddy the waters... I think if they said that, I would then say, okay, what particularly did you have in mind? So if they can then give me a specific example where Christians agree about something that really is fundamental to the Christian faith. For example, did Jesus really die on the cross? Did he really rise from the dead? Those kind of questions. Well, then we would have a big problem. But I suspect, although I don't know, that if they do mention something, it will be a relatively minor or secondary issue. So they might say, well, look, I know at your church, you baptize grown-ups, don't you? You have like a big thing and they go under the water. Well, you know, when I grew up, we baptized babies. They might mention that. And where I can happily say, well, look, you know, this is, surely this is a secondary thing. The main thing is, in what name were they being baptized? They're being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So who's this Son? Who's Jesus? So that's what I'd like to go in on. If, worst case scenario, they say, okay, I've just finished A-level history degree. I spent two years studying religious wars between Protestants and Catholics. Seems to me they're disagreeing about how we are saved. Protestants saying it's by faith. Catholics saying by its combination of faith and works. I think you then have got to go down that road. Now, obviously, the Catholic Church has changed its view somewhat over the years, but I think you would have to concede at that point, okay, historically, there is a difference between those two. Although, if you went to the HTB leadership conference at the Royal Albert Hall, you would not come away thinking, oh, basically, Protestants and Catholics are two different teams who are at war with each other. You'd think, hey, we're all part of the same team. 
couple more questions before we close. Yeah, go for it. Uh, yeah, thank, thanks for sharing your time, your, your thoughts with us. Um, as, as you mentioned about you know, the, the um, crucifixion of, of Jesus, you know, there's, there's evidence outside, outside the Bible as well. Um, but, I mean, one, one of the, the things that was mentioned was, is whether well, the Bible disagrees with itself sometimes. And again, that, that can be down to interpretation. But one of the things that, that struck me recently is how, yeah, all of the Gospels agree on Jesus' crucifixion. They all agree on his resurrection. But the surprising thing is, is how they find out after the resurrection, because it seems very, there are very different stories, it seems, and they seem to diverge from that. I was thinking, in, is it in Matthew where they, seem, they, they find Jesus in Galilee? But in other stories, they, they meet Jesus on, on the road to Amemaeus and things like that. So how, how do you reconcile that, that difference? Oh, well, thank you so much for asking this question. And I, I am going to tackle this as part of my talk tomorrow on the resurrection. But let me do you the credit of answering what is a really good question. You're absolutely right that when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... The differences in the events, particularly the sequence of the events in the resurrection accounts, are very striking. Now, there's not a lot about the resurrection in Mark, so let's just put Mark to one side for the time being. And so, what we've got to try and work out is, is this disagreement on the details, like the order of events, is this something that undermines the credibility of the very idea that Jesus really rose from the dead, or could it strengthen it? Now, let me ask, let me explain what I mean. One of the things that happens in a criminal trial, let's say at the Old Bailey today, is that if you're on the jury and lots of eyewitnesses come along, and if they all say exactly the same thing, immediately you think, hang on a minute, they've been talking to each other, they're reading from a script. And that's why. The eyewitnesses are kept apart until the date of the trial. So what lawyers do is they look at eyewitness testimony and assess, is there evidence of collusion or not? Now, this might seem a bit corny, but in the US, one of the things that lawyers do is they rank lawyers as to who is the most successful, because of course that's the whole thought process behind the American way, who's the winningest lawyer? And it just so happens that the most successful trial lawyer in the USA is Mark L. Lanier. And it just so happens that Mark Lanier is an evangelical Christian who teaches Sunday school. And he has just written a book called Christianity on Trial in which he does exactly what you're asking. He looks at all these resurrection accounts and says, okay, if this were a trial... What would I make of this? And his conclusion is that he thinks that the amount of disagreement and agreement is about right. So he backs up Simon Greenleaf, who's a Harvard Law School uh, professor of many years ago, who put forward the idea that the amount of agreement and the amount of disagreement is about right. Let me give you one example from my own life. When I was a newspaper reporter... The first match report I ever did for the independent newspaper, where I was really hoping to do well, plus it was the only premiership match on that night, was as, um, an, uh, Crystal Palace versus Aston Villa. And in the first half, Crystal Palace scored the only goal of the game, and they won 1-0. And although all of us agreed on who had scored the goal, we all disagreed about who crossed the ball. So the following day in all the newspapers, 
you had all these different versions. You had the Adrian Holloway version of the Benz, and I said it was whoever it was, Mark Bright. Somebody else says it's Ian Wright. Somebody else said it was somebody else. But we all agreed on the fact that Palace had won, and we all agreed on the goal scorer. So anyway, these lawyers have looked at the differences, and they've said, yeah, okay, there's differences about the number of angels, but is that really surprising? Because I might see two angels from where I'm standing, but you might only encounter one from your perspective. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus, well, they clearly are separate chronologically from all the other stuff that's going on. And then there are other disciples we don't necessarily know what their names were. And so Lanier presents an attempt to bring all of these resurrection accounts into one. In fact, William Lane Craig has done the same thing. So I think the best thing to do would be to, to read one of these attempts to harmonize the different detailed stories of the resurrection accounts and then decide, do I think this has credibility? Is this like a car crash where I only catch the end of it because I was on this side of the pavement? You were actually in the car behind, so you saw it from a different perspective. She was having a haircut and was looking at it throughout, throughout the window. So we're all giving our version from different viewpoints, but the main things about the cars that were in collision are the same, but we've got some of the sequence of events wrong or different doesn't necessarily mean that what we're saying about the car crash is fundamentally flawed because we have different versions. So I hope that's helpful. I think we've run out of time. Guys, thank you so much for coming. I'll be back here again 2.30 tomorrow. We'll ask the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.